Hi, welcome to another episode of Global.Science. I'm Lev Horodisky. I'm Fabia Battistuzzi. And what are we talking about today? I think it's time for our origin story. I agree. So how did we meet? I can't remember. It's very traumatic. <laughs> well, it was not that traumatic, although I kind of had to check up on you because you were passed out. In no, the no, 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 no. That's not, not, we, we don't need to discuss that. It was a long time ago in 2004. Mm -hmm. We were doing an astrobiology field course uh, because for geologists, it's important to do field work. And I remember all the biologists wanted to go off and get a hotel room. Yes, because for us biologists, we don't do field course because it's icky and we like uh, comfortable and warm rooms instead of cold camping grounds. Yes, but cold camping grounds is how you get the real geol geological experience, especially when your uh, tent blows away because you forgot to anchor it down. Well, that I suppose is true, which is why we, we biologists went to a hotel while you geologists stayed in the in the tents and you also started licking rocks. I remember that. Well, we ended up going to the hotel too, so. <laughs> But we did our uh, our field experience uh, in uh, um, the uh, Upper Peninsula of Michigan and in Ontario, uh, which was uh, quite an interesting location, uh, at least for us who were not coming from a geology background, um, because it was the first time that we were exposed to actual field course and how do you collect um, information when you are out there and you are not comfortably sitting in front of your desk and your computer. You do it by licking rocks. Apparently so. And now you do that too for your classes, don't you? I do. I have actually started a field course in geology and evolution for my own students because I think it's a very important experience for uh, uh, students of different backgrounds to get together and go out and explore instead of just doing it through the computer. And how many of your students showed up in high heels and sandals? Well... <laughs> Nobody, but quite a few of them were not prepared for the rain that we found, so we had to buy ponchos last minute. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's a good intro to our guest today, Dr. Udana Horodisky, uh, who happens to be my sister. Can you believe we got her? It's awesome. Yeah, well, it turns out it's actually hard to get her because she's not often in this country. Um, but she works at our company, Science in the Wild, and she is also currently working at the North Central Climate Adaptation Science Center at the University of Colorado Boulder. Okay, uh, and she does some extreme field work. So let us welcome her to the show. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Welcome. So you are currently in the United States. Is that right? Yep, but only because of COVID. <laughs> okay. You may not be when this episode airs, so. <laughs> right. All right. So I have followed along with your career for your entire life for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. um, so I think before we get into the extreme environments where you work, I'd be interested to know more about remembering uh what happened during your phd because i can't remember that far back anymore i could barely remember <laughs> field work you did a lot of you took an unconventional approach to your dissertation yeah so i really wanted to be outdoors um for my phd 
um, but there was no money for it. There were, we tried for National Science Foundation grants, all sorts of grants and nothing big was coming through. So I kind of took the matter into my own hands um, through crowd fundraising. You know how there's Kickstarter and that's mostly for like creative products, uh, films, books. So like, is there anything for science? So I started Googling it um, and I found a couple and the one I ended up going with is called PetriDish.org. It's, it's no longer functioning. Um, but it was a way for me to get a science project up saying, hey, guys, I'm going to Nepal. I'm going to go do some research on glaciers and how they're melting. Here's the idea um, of, you know, setting up time lapse cameras to watch these changes in real time, be a part of it in real time. And so that, that raised enough money to go do my first field season. Um, and that was in 2011. And then from there, it kind of snowballed um, where people were interested in I following what it. what you did there. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> are there still snowballs out in the uh, Himalayan glaciers? Yes, there are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but surprisingly enough, they're really debris covered. So covered in rocks and mud a lot more than you would expect. You know, when you think of glaciers, you think of those beautiful, you know, like uh, blue ice glaciers of the Arctic or Antarctica. But in the, in the mountainous areas, there's a lot more rubble. So I remember coming with my ice axe crampons, like, yeah, I'm gonna go climb. They're like, wait a second. <laughs> it's rocks what are everywhere. Crampons. So crampons are these uh, metal spikes that you attach to your boots um, that allow you to walk on ice uh, safely without slipping. Um, and so you need those for, for glaciers, but not this one because it's just covered in, in rocks. And so you look like you have a question. Yeah, so I remember that your your research actually got coverage. Was it in the BBC uh, when it yeah. came out? Because mm -hmm. you caught something that had never been caught before. Yeah, so we set up a few time-lapse cameras to watch uh, these. They're called supraglacial lakes, so uh, lakes that reside basically on the surfaces of glaciers. Um, but the surface is only part of the story. There's these ice tunnels and caves that connect um, these lakes. You can almost think that it's like a glacier subway system. And so we don't know how it works though, because it's really dangerous to go into those caves. You know, when they're active, you can go in there frozen and kind of get an idea of the passageways. Uh, so the idea behind the cameras was to watch the lakes all the time. Um, it was taking a photo every hour um, and it caught a lake uh, draining about 40 Olympic sized pools worth of water and then refilling um, and in the span of two weeks. And so during the summertime is the monsoon period in Nepal. So it's really cloudy. So satellites can't see typically a lot of this activity. Um, and also the satellite passes that at that point were only every two weeks. So it would have missed this event. And so the, the time-lapse cameras caught this happening as, as, as it was going. And so it was really exciting to try to understand more about the dynamics and mechanics of, of how these, these lakes behave. Uh, so yeah, it got picked up by the BBC, which is a, a really uh, exciting thing, you know, to see, see a picture of me rappelling down to the spot to, to install a camera in the remote Himalaya. And I'm sure it was also very inspiring for a lot of other people. Yeah, and that's the thing, like growing up, I didn't really have female role models um, in mountaineering um, or in the sciences, really. And so I feel like if, if my work and the kind of thing I'm doing with adventure, you know, and science could, could get girls interested, that's a big win. And so, yeah, from, from there, uh, throughout the years with more coverage, I found that, it, yeah, it was, it was an influence on, on young women. I did this program called Girls on Ice, um, which was teaching girls how to mountaineer uh, and do science in, um, in the Cascades in Washington, as well as up in Alaska. So uh, who runs uh, Girls on Ice? 
And so that was run through the University of Alaska, actually, in Fairbanks. Um, and now it's called Inspiring Girls Expeditions, and it's free. So girls, it's really competitive. Um, so it's hundreds of girls applying for maybe like 12 spots, um, but it's life changing. And you could see that with the, with the young girls they are all high school aged and you can see them just learning and getting excited and, and having a good time out there. Excellent. And so is this why you chose to kind of go down the independent route when you finished? Because after you finished, you didn't do what's typical of a lot of PhD graduates, which is a postdoc and then another postdoc and then another postdoc and then <laughs> and then another postdoc then and then an eventually then an adjunct <laughs> and then you get flushed out and <laughs> well I did do a postdoc for one year but it was a really adventurous one too up in Baffin Island um, and it was sponsored by National Geographic to understand how the the snow and ice up up north is melting um, but yeah, I decided after living actually abroad in Nepal for a year on a Fulbright that's that's basically how I was able to finish my PhD. I saw so many people like interested in what I was doing, wanting to come along. I had this inflatable raft, you know, that we would take out onto the lakes to make measurements. And people were like, what are you, what are you doing out here? This is really cool. So it kind of got the ideas flowing of like, well, maybe I could turn this into a business, a company where I take people on these trips, I'm not trying to turn people into scientists, but exposing them to what scientists do so that they have more of an idea of like when they see those graphs in the New York times for climate and how things are changing. And it's really scary. Like, well, what's the raw data look like? Like, how do you get it? What do scientists have to go through in some of these extreme places? And I think people get like a deeper understanding and appreciation for science and scientists that way. So where do you take these people on these expeditions? Because that's part of what Science in the Wild does. At least before COVID, you were taking mm -hmm. uh, regular people, or at least regular people with money and time, uh, <laughs> to places where they could see science being done in extreme environments. Um, what are some of the places you've taken people and how have they kind of reacted to being in the field and seeing what you do? Yeah, so the idea was to um, get people at all levels, right? So, so some of the stuff we do is really extreme and, and it requires skill like mountaineering or Arctic travel. Um, so there are different levels people can join at, but um, one of the favorites was Kilimanjaro, which is more of a science kind of educational trip. And so some of the other trips we've done to the Arctic um, or really like their research focus, they had a grant so people could get covered on it, um, but you have to be expert level. So you have to apply for that one. But for people who just want to join, um, we found Kilimanjaro to be a really good one where you go through five different vegetation zones. So imagine you're in the rainforest with monkeys and then all of a sudden you're in what's called the moorlands, which is kind of like Joshua tree um, here in the States to get a kind of a um, idea of what those plants and trees look like and more desert-like. And then it goes into really desert uh, was just just rocks strewn about everywhere alpine kind of desert and then glaciers and so you just see this variety of vegetation um, as you go up and people just absolutely love learning about how that happens um, and the altitudinal effects that cause that we do some basic you know science tests like how do you do a soil test for nutrients what does that mean how do we identify the plant life so we do use a bunch of citizen science apps as well. So there's like Globe Observer, which is um, sponsored by NASA that allows people to contribute cloud measurements. Um, iNaturalist allows you to take photos um, of, of flora and fauna in the different areas. And so that's the idea behind Science of the Wild is taking people on these adventurous trips, exposing them to science, but then also linking it with other apps. So some of the data we do end up collecting get used. 
Um, so what is citizen science for people who aren't familiar with it? Because I know I've seen citizen science talks um, at like Comic-Con we used to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that people have criticized citizen science because mm-hmm. it's not as, some of the data collection isn't as rigorous as what you would do in the lab. Although looking at some of our students, I'm not sure how rigorous <laughs> that data collection is uh, anyway. Um, so why kind of the citizen science uh, approach? Yeah, so I, I like to think of, of citizen science as its public participation in the practice of, of science. Um, the way it's traditionally been done is people are contributing to data monitoring and collection programs, but I didn't want science in the world to just be that, right? Because I don't want them to just collect data and scientists use it and they don't understand, well, did I actually do science or did I just collect data? Uh, so where science in the world comes in is like, telling more about the art of science storytelling, right? It's not just data, it's the story the data tell us. You know, how do we figure out like, hey, the climate's really changing much more quickly in the Arctic or in the Himalaya than other places. How do we actually find that out from the raw data? So my program is more interested in having uh, people collect data while they're on expedition, but also understanding how we tell that story based off the raw data. So that's what I would really like to see uh, citizen science evolving is not just having people collecting data, but being involved in that analysis storytelling part of it. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of value to the apps um, and, and the data people contribute. And I think from what I've seen in the few citizen science programs I've worked with online, they have some pretty good training like built into the actual app and in-person training. Um, I actually just trained a team in Iceland um, they're heading up to the North Pole uh, in a few months here, and they want to contribute to science, not just go ski to the North Pole. Um, and so seeing how they interacted with it, how they were learning and how they were interested in it and, and the mistakes they were making um, really helps give an insight into more rigorous kind of training that needs to be done for citizen science to be like of best use. So do you think having combined uh, teams of scientists like yourself with the public is uh, the way to go to bring science to uh, outside the world outside of academia? Absolutely. So one of the biggest problems I see in this country and also globally too is just science illiteracy, right? It's a big problem. And we're seeing that with the pandemic right now, just all the misinformation out there and people don't, don't know how to sort out information. They don't know how to think critically. And so one hope is, like I said, science in the wall is not to turn people into scientists, but get them thinking like them. Um, and the things that they learn when it comes to rational um, thinking and critical thinking applies to every aspect of life. So I want people to realize, you know, that they are learning these skills that could be applicable to other areas of their lives. They're like, huh, I'm not sure. Like, well, should I get a vaccine or should I not? you know, where do I get the best information too? Because I think something that's not taught as well as how to vet that information, because there is so much on the internet. And so that's one of the things I do with my students when I teach as well, is I'll give them a whole series of articles, some that are pro and some that are against man-made climate change, and see what they do with it. See if they believe, you know, like, um, well, this popular article said it's not us, you know, so, so it kind of gives them an idea of how to use skepticism and reason also. So you use some uh, role playing in, in your classes uh, when you teach. I think uh, you told me you uh, taught at was it Colorado College? And yes. You did these intensive two week programs. 
and you use role playing uh, when you uh, and, and to be fair, a lot of the work that you're doing out in the mountains when you take people there is like a more extreme form of role playing where they're not just there to take photos and uh, take their Instagram shots. They're actually role playing as scientists, not just collecting the data, but help you analyze it. How, how have you found the role playing uh, works with your students when you're asking them to actually mm-hmm. make these uh, decisions with whether it's information out in the field or information that you've curated for them in the classroom? Yeah, so in both cases, both in the classroom at Colorado College and Science in the Wild role playing um, expeditions, they both received really positive reviews because I, people love games. Right. People like to be involved. People don't like to be like sometimes really like reading a book and learning if they have to. But you kind of not I don't want to use the word trick them into it, but you involve them and immerse them in it where they realize, wow, this is actually really cool. So with Science in the Wild, when we went to the Atacama Desert in Chile, that's the place where NASA did a lot of tests of the rovers. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on about interaction of water in in, in the desert, Um, like how much water does it take to create these these interesting coatings on rocks that have also been found on Mars. So we did a role playing, you're the mission specialist, you're the payload specialist, you're the engineer, people loved it. They got a little bag of stuff that told them their, their, their mission role, all the gear they have to pick from, who they have to collaborate with to kind of solve a mission. So that one was probably the most popular science in the wild. And then in Colorado College, I did an advanced Alpine class uh, on um, climate change in the high Alpine. And um, instead of a final exam, we had a final competition where it was a four stage thing where they would have to fly an underwater rover to pick up something on, on the ground of, of a pool because we actually did one of those tasks with a rover out in the wild um, and one of the, the alpine lakes here to study you know, what's at the bottom of, of the lake. So they were tested on that. They had to use these things called handheld spectrometers to make measurements of how reflective things are. So they had to actually take everything they learned in the field, in the class, in their final exam, which again was more of a kind of a final competition. And the students said that was the most unique final they'd ever had. And they loved it because it was like really having them think and apply. That's what I think the role playing does too. It's about thinking and applying what they learn, not just, you know, memorizing something and spitting it back on an exam. I wish I could go back being a student and take a class. <laughs> I think what she needs is, I think she needs a couple of mission scientists for Atacama expedition. Um, that I we volunteer. Can, yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> so I think, uh, I think that's what's necessary so that we can uh, spread our field expertise to uh, um, your, uh, your students. <laughs> Well, absolutely, because, you know, I'm a geologist and, and glaciologist, but I want people who specialize in chemistry, physics, biology along. And that's that's kind of the growth that we're, we're looking to see with science in the wild. Obviously, the pandemic put a damper on all that. But that's the growth I see is bringing along other scientists who can contribute so much more to the experience for the for the people. Mm-hmm. Well, and from and from an academic perspective, there is a um, stronger push towards internship style right so if you are in the business school you obviously intern in you know a google or a facebook or whatever company but for us the scientists internships are a little bit more difficult because first of all they require a certain level of training and second there aren't that many companies that are willing to take in somebody who's inexperienced like an undergraduate student right. so companies like yours would be perfect to establish connections and bring the science into re- real world Exactly. And I think it also exposes people to like 
for undergraduates, because I have had undergraduates come on these trips, like, I really want to do science or nope, not for me. And that's okay. And that experience is how you really learn. I was just uh, recently uh, reading a book called Range that talked about how we specialize a bit too early and, mm. uh, and then we don't have that breadth of experience. And I think both for you and for me, and I think you always knew what you, well, you want to be a, I'm not sure you want to be a bioinformatician, did you? No, I did not. I wanted to be a vet. Uh, and then I took an anatomy course and realized I couldn't be a vet. <laughs> and so I decided, okay, bioinformatics it is. <laughs> so yeah, I think providing these opportunities for students to explore these options, because you could decide like, oh, I want to be a scientist because I want to wear the white lab coat and, you know, uh, go and save us from an asteroid. It's very different from what you do in a, on an everyday basis. And right. having those opportunities where you can explore and, and role play as that kind of person, I think is really great. Well, the, how I actually got the idea for Science in the Wild beyond um, my experience in Nepal and really thinking about this was I took part in a few citizen academies is what they were called. So the Citizens Police Academy <laughs> and the Citizens Firefighting Academy. And so you got to be SWAT team and you got to go like, storm a building and like you just understand like the interesting fun obviously the fun parts of, of, of a job and the more interesting stuff but it really exposed me to what police officers and firefighters kind of do um so i was like huh it's giving people an experience it's citizens you know participating in it and they don't want to become this but some might you know from this experience so that kind of did plant that that idea too it's like giving people this kind of immersive experience in science beyond you know like with the classroom and labs and stuff that's just one thing some people really love that but I feel like when you add an adventurous component to it, it, it really changes the game. So I think um, as we kind of get to the end here, what are some of the biggest challenges you found working in these environments? Because I know that you've had uh, some close calls with people uh, that you're responsible for out in the field and you go to some places that are fairly dangerous. I'm, I'm always amazed how you could point out that this bit of ice is dangerous and, and this bit isn't, and I can't really tell the difference. What are some of the biggest challenges in working in, in the kinds of environments where you work? Yeah, so definitely the elements. You know, we are taking people out into nature, which, as we know, is fickle. And so we could have beautiful weather and all of a sudden it descends into a snowstorm. And yeah, we're responsible for keeping people safe. So I um, have tools at my disposal, you know, with weather forecasting, speaking with with people who do actual mountain meteorology um, to keep people safe. And also um, what I've learned through the experiences with science in the wild is what people would really like to see would be some kind of webinars to prepare them for the science aspects beforehand and some intro hikes here before they commit um, to going to say Kilimanjaro or um, climbing down to the Andes. So that's what we're looking to integrate too, is to, to make people feel uh, safe and happy about the experience and that they are, they're up for it. Um, up in the Arctic, we have obviously the threat of wildlife, um, polar bears. And so I definitely have seen a polar bear in the wild with a group of people um, and, and you really have to, you know, you have the specialized skills. So I've gone ahead and, and gone through a certification to being a polar guide for those purposes too, and wilderness first responder. So all the medical training that I need. So I feel as a, as the leader of the expedition and as their guide that I, they're in good hands. And of course I, I hire a team of specialists who are actual mountain guides who are doctors. So what is your next adventure going to be? So my husband and I are actually going to the Andes. Um, the plane crash that happened in 1972, that um, it's a really famous survival story um, of a rugby team that crashed and 16 survivors 
you know, eventually were, were rescued. And so it's the 50th anniversary um, of, that, of that crash. And so we're going with one of the survivors to the site. And one of the things I'm interested in on the science aspect of it is I am looking into whether or not the, the year of the crash was an El Nino or La Nina year and what that meant for the snowpack um, and, and how the plane actually survived uh, mostly intact as far as the fuselage of the crash. So that, that's my personal interest in, in the science aspects of it. And then the team I mentioned going to the North Pole, um, I'll be meeting them in uh, Svalbard. So it's an archipelago um, about 650 miles uh, from the North Pole um, to collect and process some of their, their samples. They're looking at pollution uh, in a snowpack up there. And so I'll be flying out to meet them there. And then it's kind of open. Um, we're hoping to do some stuff over the summer, but again, it's like Kilimanjaro perhaps again. Um, but it depends, you know, we have this new variant with COVID and, and, and how things will look. But that's the positive outlook right now. <laughs> well, it sounds like you have a few packed months ahead of you. Yes. <laughs> have you packed for those months yet? <laughs> um, I'm always semi-packed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it was great catching up with you because I know I need to schedule my time to talk to you now because you're so busy. <laughs> so Yeah, it's ramping up. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, next time we talk to you, you better have some more exciting uh, adventures to share with us. <laughs> Great talking to you guys. All right. Awesome. Thank you. So I'm pretty sure that she needs a field uh, field guide or a field field helper in that Akama Desert. I am going to start packing right now. <laughs> yes. Do you know how to pack for for an extreme desert? I mean, you wanted to high go... heels, you said, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I have a few of those. High heels and a fancy hotel with catering. <laughs> yep, works for me. I can handle that. <laughs> so, um, would you uh, consider taking your students to more extreme places than you already do, or do you think they could? just barely handle the I place where you go. Extreme places might be a little bit difficult, especially because being within an academic environment, uh, there are you know, a lot of potential legal issues if a student gets hurt during you know, uh, an official academic course, um, but definitely exposing them more to uh, the outside and how you collect data and what do you do with the data. I think that would be an amazing way for them to actually experience real science. And I, I love what Uliana is doing. And I think it would be amazing if universities could partner with companies like hers to uh, promote this kind of science experience for our students. And like she said, you know, some may love it, some may not, but the sooner they realize that something is not for them, the better it is for them to choose their careers. And I think it's important to have that uh, analysis portion in there. Because I remember, the analysis portion was difficult for me when I was doing my PhD that I loved collecting the data because I always learned how to use a new instrument and press new buttons and new techniques, but then making sense of it, that's really where the science comes to life. And that's, that's a lot more of a difficult skill than just collecting the data. It's difficult and it's even more difficult when you get uh, to the point where you have to write up your results, whether it's in a scientific paper or a presentation for the general public, you need to use the same data and the same uh, information you collected in very different ways. And so it's, it's really important for uh, uh, anybody, really, not just the students, but any scientist to be exposed soon in their career and, uh, and frequently to these different kind of, kinds of way of communicating. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to end for today. That was a really interesting discussion and we'll, you'll hear more from us next time. 
Wonderful. Thank you, Uliana. Thank you and goodbye. Music for today's episode is motivated by Alex Make Music from pixabay.com. You can learn more about Ulana Horodisky's work at scienceinthewild.com. Global.Science is a production of Science Voices, a U.S. nonprofit organization. Go to www.sciencevoices.org to learn more about our mission, our various projects, and to contribute to them.